Today's podcast is brought to you by Ryan, a leading global tax service and software provider that helps companies manage and minimize property taxes from acquisition to disposition and all points in between. As the firm with the most local market property tax professionals across the country, Ryan has experience in nearly every jurisdiction, unmatched by any other national, regional, or local provider. Welcome to WMRE's Common Area Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at WMRE. Let's jump right into this week's podcast. Hello and welcome to The Common Area with your host, David Bodemer. David, how are you? I'm doing well. Um, we're being snowed on again here in New York right now With um, after, I feel like, I don't know, not having any snow for a couple of winters, it seemed like now we've had all of the snow. So yeah, what do you get? Seventeen feet now, something like that. It's just ridiculous amounts. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's it's. I, th- I don't know how much we're supposed to get today, but um, I mean, we're, at least it's just snow. Unlike, I mean, right now we're recording this on Thursday, and still with this crazy situation in Texas, and then I know like, ext- and it's pretty cold where you are too right now, right? Yeah, the other day it was negative 22, and that was without wind chill. I'm just like, is, is this serious? Is something broken? <laughs> so yeah, it is what it is. But uh, I know today you've got a guest on the show, That's and right. uh, I'd love for you to introduce her to the audience. Great. Yes, this week um, we have with us Melinda McLaughlin, who is uh, the Vice President of Research with Prologis. Welcome to the show, Melinda. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So um, I think you know even some of what we were what we were talking about with the weather kind of like dovetails with um, logistics, you know, since that's something that disrupts it. But um, you know the main thing that I wanted to, to discuss is that you, you guys put out these really great research notes and and um, different findings, just you know, with your position in the industry and and all the visibility you have around the global logistics chain. I th- I'm always impressed with with you know the way that you turn that into broader commentary and insights for the industry at large, and you put together this report about just automation and the way that that's being adopted and that how that how that might you know affect the logistics chain. So I wanted to just you know get more of your insights uh, on that. So if you could just um, I think just to start, you know, if you want to give us some of the key headline. Um, takeaways from that report, um, and then we can kind of, you know, go from there. Absolutely. Well, firstly, thank you. Um, I'm glad people are reading the reports and enjoying them. We, joining Prologis, I I found I was very lucky to not only have today, actually, nearly a billion square feet uh, that's generating data all the time to pull from, but a very diverse range of customers and, and naturally a local team on the ground who are experts at what they do. So when we try to delve into an area, we're really asking what are the fundamental changes in the way customers are using their supply chain and automation definitely cropped up, not just um, over time as, as labor has been the number one, two and three pain point for our customers, but especially during COVID-19 where even though we, we saw this rise in unemployment, what we heard is that it actually became harder to find skilled labor during the pandemic due to, you know, childcare, elder care duties, absenteeism, and all those different things. So we wanted to take a step back, use that very diverse um, range of information and data points 
to say, one, what is the state of automation today? Two, where's the change and, and why? And then three, what does that mean for the future of logistics real estate? So there's a lot in here. Uh, we had to release it in two parts because there was so much content. But I think on the first part, what is the state of automation today? I think it's it's less prevalent than most people would believe. Whenever there is um, a piece of media on logistics real estate or on the supply chains, I feel like the video, the photography tends to focus on these highly automated, you know, beautiful facilities with a lot of mezzanine and a lot of conveyors and robots. And while those exist, absolutely, um, they actually represent a minority of the space. Mm -hmm. Again, over 5,000 customers, the vast majority of them are in businesses where, you know, while there's certainly automation that's been part of the way they run their operations for a long time, I mean, forklifts are, are automation, that highly sophisticated um, system really only affects, you know, 20% or less of, of spaces in, a, in an area like the U.S. and abroad. So it's, it's probably less prevalent than most people would believe. And those very sophisticated, they're called ASRS, automated storage and retrieval systems, where you see a lot of density, um, a lot of robotics. It's a much smaller proportion than that, um, less than 5%, maybe less than 3%. So really, this is still a, a trend that's impacting a minority of spaces out there. And that was kind of the first finding is just level setting on what is the state of automation in warehouses today. Yeah, so that's interesting just in, in, in and of itself, you know, because there is a lot of focus on it. I think obviously a lot of people hear about automation and they think about, you know, job losses and that what that might mean. So I think there is a real reason why people are concerned about it, but it does sound like it's, it's we're still in adoption point where it's only certain properties and certain users who are using it. Yeah, well, the benefits are highly concentrated for your most labor intensive um, operations. And today, the, that's absolutely e-commerce. Mm -hmm. So what you see is not only is the labor intensity, which is about three times as much as a traditional logistics operation where you're moving more pallets than um, parcels. You know, not only do you get the benefits of using the labor, but because it is such a speed oriented business, um, there is a tremendous need for velocity, maintaining momentum, obviously using your human talent to its maximum potential and reducing the um, order inaccuracy because there's a lot, you know, think about how much it costs to send something back um, because it's, it's the wrong order. I mean, right. these reverse logistics costs are significant. So when you stack all that up, e-commerce uses more space, it uses more labor, um, and it has a much more complex operation. You start to add up all these different benefits of automation. But one thing I, I kind of want to step back and, and correct is we actually don't see a lot of job loss. Um, even in the highly automated facilities uh, that we see in our, our portfolio, they're also still some of the most labor intensive. The question is, how are you using your automated talent, I guess you could call it, versus your human talent? And what we found is that automation is really about taking out these highly repetitive steps from the process and refocusing your human talent on uh, 
parts of the operation that require more flexibility, more problem solving, more creativity. So it really is about, it isn't about cutting out jobs. It's about making sure you're using people in the right way and ultimately realizing more productivity. Yeah, well, I think that's a very important corrective. So I'm glad that you threw that in. I was partly just trying to speak to like, you know, I think when people hear that word, their warnings about, but I, I feel like that's always been a thing too, though. Like, I mean, through the years, there's always this fear of, it's not a new thing, but just like te- what, oh, new technology, fear of technology, because is it going to, re- you know, how is it going to kill my job? <laughs> exactly. So. Well, the one of the most well-known examples of that was that the ATM, right? Everybody's like, mm-hmm. oh, we won't have tellers anymore. But today we have more tellers than prior to the in, uh, invention and implementation of the ATM. They're just doing more relationship oriented things. So they're either doing sales or customer service. And, you know, I think it ultimately ends up a win-win because simply dispensing cash was obviously something a machine could do. So within these facilities, when you take a piece, let's say uh, one example is that repetitive walking. So what some example cases found was there were workers traversing miles a day, you know, just kind of walking back and forth. And if you can take that and shift it to a conveyor, shift it to an automated forklift, not only to save person that travel time where it's, again, it's not really value add, it's just moving things from one place to another, um, but you also improve the safety of your facility as well. Mm -hmm. So what we found was an important auxiliary benefit here was actually improving the work environment inside these inside these facilities by again, refocusing human, human labor and taking out some of the repetitive tasks. So one of the things that the, another thing that the report talked about is, okay, so if these, if we're bringing the, um, you know, for in, introducing more automation to these facilities, what is the implication for the space? And cause like, again, there might be a thought of like, oh, well, if, if maybe not, not for a great reason, but I, like there could just be the automatic thought, like if it's going to be more automated, then maybe we need less space. So, uh, (laughs) well, that's, I mean, that's why we looked into it in the first place, right? It could be a real threat to demand. So great question. And I think that that of course is your initial implication. It was certainly ours. What we actually found though, again, is it kind of goes back to what are your KPIs here? Mm -hmm. What are these operations really solving for? And the types of automation that they were implementing where we saw the change, where we saw the growth, was really more about uh, order speed time. Um, so reduce, or sorry, reducing the order lead time, so increasing speed, um, or improving accuracy. So when you think about, actually, let me back up. Where did we see the change? Where we've seen the most acceleration in adoption of automation are your mobile and your modular technologies. And the reason is, hopefully pretty obvious, a lot of customers had decades ago, you know, automation isn't brand new. Decades ago, experimented with these highly customized, um, very, very efficient, but very inflexible installed, what we called fixed automation um, in the paper. So that's your very complex ASRS system. But what you find is if your supply chain needs change, if your product changes, if the way you want to configure your operations changes, you know, that machinery was not able to adjust, Mm. Um, which means, you know, obviously there's less kind of secondary value. 
worse return on investment. Just there were a lot of examples of bad experiences in the past. Right. What's so new? So I'm just to not have that because um, it was an, an inflexible kind of system. Exactly. So what's changed today? Not only do we see the demand side, so all that e-fulfillment, it's labor intensive, it's complex. Uh, that's really changing the demand for these technologies. But on the supply side, the technologies themselves are changing to improve the return on investment. And they're changing in two key ways. Uh, they're becoming either, if it is more static, they're more modular. So they're more flexible, more able to be moved within the facility and reconfigured and have a higher secondary value, which mm -hmm. again, improves ROI. The costs are coming down kind of the whole time as technology improves, but that in particular can, can have a big impact. Or they're mobile. So cobots um, are obviously, it's been around for a while now. Amazon was a leader there with Kiva. Many other innovators in this space, and they they're the kind of technology where you can experiment with one or two. You can lease them. You don't even need to, to purchase them. So while costs have been coming down, demand has been coming up, the technologies themselves are actually just much more conducive to the way customers run their operation today. But those technologies aren't built for higher density. They're there mm -hmm. to solve the productivity equation. Again, mm -hmm. to amplify your human labor, um, get more out of um, all the resources you're you're channeling to to perform this operation. So you can see some spatial efficiencies. So Kiva, which is taking the picking part of the operation and doing it fully, you know, automated. Yeah, they they can reduce the aisle size because it's all um, you know communicated. But then there's a lot of other cobot systems which simply lead humans around. So you don't. Mm. Um, one, I, it obviously improves the productivity of the human. They're not searching for um, the right good. It improves accuracy. The machine knows exactly where to lead them, but it doesn't yield a real decrease in the logistics footprint. Um, and modular technologies in many cases are very similar. So you see maybe small efficiencies gained, but because what you're really solving for is lead time and accuracy, mm -hmm. it's, you know, that's not the primary objective. Now, with and, and some companies still are doing ASRS, so so the more dense fixed automation, and it makes sense for certain product types to do that. So if you if you have one product and it's always kind of the same, um, same size, um, same shape, it, it might be a good solution. And you can get real density out of that, mainly on the storage side. But again, that's not where we're seeing the most growth. I think it's like really clarifying to hear you talk about that and hear that it really, and, and it goes hand in hand with, I think some other trends that I think you've, that were pointed out here around just this premium on and stuff that you just talked about too, but this premium on accuracy and, and getting, and, and getting stuff out. And also that, you know, I think one of the parts of the pandemic and, and the strain that it's put on the logistics chain is that, you know, we're, we're all like more homebound and we're all ordering more stuff and, but we want it pretty fast and we want it, <laughs> and, you know, and like, and, and if you have a bad experience around something that you ordered and it didn't come fast enough or they sent the wrong thing, like, you know, I don't know that that's going to affect repeat business. So, or, and also this idea that it may be not, if you get the wrong thing, but also if like, if it's out of stock and it needs to be uh, gotten from further in the supply chain. So it takes longer to get to you. So, 
you know, just this pressures on company on, on providers to like have everything, you know, have more stuff in stock, be able to fulfill stuff fast and make sure that people are, you know, not unhappy with, with, with their experiences. So just then how this, this dovetails with that so that it wouldn't affect the real estate needs. It's just about making sure that you're, you know, you have to have everything stocked and you have to be able to get it to people and then correctly. And then you don't want to deal with the reverse logistics. So I don't know. It's just very, it's all, it's just very, it's a very fascinating evolution of this business, you know, just sitting from my seat. So, and I'm sure from yours, it's even more fascinating because since you get to um, live and breathe it. <laughs> it's, you know, I never thought I would be so interested in this space, but all the change that we've seen in the logistics real estate business, in supply chains, even just over the past year, um, it's moving so quickly and really intensifying competition and the ways, the tools, the technology, the data, um, all the all the different ways in which this business is changing makes it such a... Um, such a, a ripe, ripe subject for examination. So I think we'll continue to see, and, and I, I know my team is continuing to track and, and hopefully we'll update this, this study, study as supply chains continue to change. But I think we'll continue to see a really just you know, rapid pace of um, improvement to, to rise to meet these demands. Um, one thing that we also point out in the study is, you know, e-fulfillment alone, as you point out, we've all gotten very used to it during the pandemic, not just having it there as an option, but also the, the convenience, the service level standards, which are so high today. Um, it requires three times as much logistics real estate as, ref, um, as a brick and mortar supply chain, so as restocking right. stores. And based on how much change we've seen in the adoption of online shopping, e-fulfillment footprints are, they, they need to essentially double in size over the next five years. So we'll be looking, you know, tracking these customers. Certainly it's going to lead to a lot of need for logistics real estate, but also monitoring, you know, how do the operations change inside the building to rise to meet these challenges will be a key part of that as well. You know, and another really, really interesting data point that you had in this was the fact that companies that are doing more automation are signing longer leases. And again, not a thing that I would have, th I mean, I think the report explains why, because if you're making this kind of capital investment, then you're going to want to be in the space longer in order to get a return on that investment. It makes a lot of sense, but it's just not a thing that I like naturally would have thought about. So it was really, um, really interesting to read that. Yeah. I mean, supply chains, as much as I just said, they're, they're changing quickly. They're also quite sticky. When you think about really designing your network to accommodate the flow of goods, you're going to, you have a labor base, you know, the talent that's there, um, they're used to their commute. When you install all of this advanced equipment, even if it's modular and mobile, you still face higher moving costs. And so what we see with customers is, you know, one, it's frankly a pretty tough environment out there to find logistics space right now. Vacancy right. rates are near historic lows. So they're incentivized, you know, in a number of ways to commit um, for to a longer time frame in these spaces. Um, and it's sort of a win-win um, as a owner operator of logistics real estate. We like the, the stability of those longer leases. Um, but we know part of it's because, you know, some customers want to grow and they go out in the market and they simply cannot find the space that suits their needs in the locations that they need it. 
and then I mean you talk about the need to build so much more space to accommodate the you know all this what we're talking about how much um, ability is there to do that in the current you know hot markets in the logistics chain like are, are there's is there the ability to build the amount of inventory that we are going to need or might it actually alter the logistics chain based on trying to put thing you know put some of the stuff in places where it might not be now it's a good question now i would say in aggregate we cannot build enough logistics supply in the in the real places where it's needed which is very close to end consumers um those are the spaces that are already really built out densely populated and the regulatory barriers are extremely high and rising so one, you know, finding land for development in, in many of those places is near impossible. But even if you could find something, we're facing higher resistance, higher uh, costs. And so I do think in the markets closest to end consumers where we see that e-fulfillment need concentrated, we'll face a continued uh, undersupply. Now, that's not to say that there won't be more building of modern stock in, in markets with lower barriers to, to new supply, places where you can find more ample land. It just isn't, in many cases, it's it's not ideal for the customer. You do want to be close to where, not only where there's key transportation junctures, where there are um, proximity to end consumers, but also proximity to labor. Like we said, this helps make your labor more productive, but it does not replace it. So all of those things are really pushing customers to get closer in to urban centers, but where you can build is further and further out. So we do see some development happening in new locations, new submarkets, and some customers go there because frankly, they, they need to make it work. Um, they mm -hmm. need the space to grow and, and that's what's available. But I think overall, one thing that the, the report found is we kind of digested all of these impacts that are set to transform the demand side of the logistics real estate equation is, you know, we're likely to have a shortfall, you know, over kind of the near to medium term horizon, at least, because simply uh, incorporating automation is not enough to to outweigh the needs that are generated from cyclical growth, from e-commerce and from retooling supply chains for resilience. You know, I think one learning from the pandemic was we had spent decades, you know, sprinting toward the the most efficient supply chain that we could the just-in-time right. inventory model and um when you start to hit some speed bumps which frankly were happening before the pandemic with some of the the global trade tensions us china brexit um we had started to see some customers already begin to build inventories to to help enhance resilience during some mm -hmm. of these disruptions. And I think the pandemic was just the ultimate disru disruption. So going forward, when we talk to customers about what what are some of their plans for the future, you know, we do hear talk about, you know, five to 10 to 15% more inventory held within a country's borders because so many, uh, so many of them lost revenue opportunities by simply being out of stock. Yeah, it's, um, it's definitely been interesting to, to see people grapple with that and then what that what that's meant for for our supply chain and is there any opportunity for reuse like adaptive reuse of other property types to i mean i know like there's there's been some talk of or some examples of at malls doing you know turning department stores into small distribution hubs locally i don't know if that's that's really on par with some of you know the the 
the kind of massive facilities that that we might need or you know the kind of things that that you guys specialize in but but are there could there be some potential for you know total redevelopment of a mall into into this kind of a use um since since, since we seems like we're probably going to have fewer malls at some point <laughs> yeah no it's uh it's definitely a question we get a lot and in fact uh we did write a paper on this topic as well just sizing the opportunity so you know, a typical year of new logistics supply is 250 million square feet, give or take. Um, the the amount of mall space out there or total retail space really that is likely to, to be well positioned for redevelopment is, is a drop in the bucket. You know, it's mm. probably, you know, we estimate five to 10 million square feet per year relative to that that much larger total that we're, we're normally used to. And for a few key reasons, one, when we talk especially about last touch fulfillment, you know, a retail location that's in distress is not going to be well suited to get to end consumers in a quick time frame. A lot of times they're they're in distress simply because they're they're not close enough to to end consumers or, or these really healthy, um, thriving consumption bases. So on one hand, there's just this tension of the retail that's likely to be in distress is not really the best positioned for e-fulfillment. You know, mm -hmm. as you get closer into urban cores, the retail also tends to be doing better. You know, notwithstanding, of course, uh, this, the current situation we're in where options are limited. But yeah, downtown core real estate, grocery anchored centers, all of them are doing quite fine. So it's really the, the lower quality malls that a lot of this press has focused on. Right. And the challenges there are are pretty substantial. Now, again, there will be examples of this being done well, of really finding a diamond in the rough and redeveloping it. But in a lot of cases, you know, the design of the site, you know, even if you have a great location, the design of the site can be a challenge. The difference um, in values, there's still pr a pretty big gap, even though we've seen a lot of positive momentum in the logistics sector, there's usually still a pretty big gap between what a retail center will sell for and, and what a logistics center will get. So it requires a lot of compromise on both sides. Um, so we just generally, as we took a step back and sized the market, um, it, it it could, there, like I said, there will be examples of it being successful, but it's not enough to really change the demand and supply imbalance that we see in the space. So there'll be like marginal examples, but it's not, it's sure. it doesn't really get to the heart of the problem or the heart of the the heart of the need that um that we have for the for this kind of space precisely i wish it were that easy <laughs> i wish we could just switch it all and, and our customers would be very happy and and me as an end consumer i'd get those those goods within an hour or so but again where we see the need it's it's still a very competitive environment for for land use so yeah the other question i was going to ask is just given the the success and the evolution and everything that we're talking about in the logistics sector, the kind of investors who are interested in this space, have you seen that evolve at all in the past year in terms of different kinds of investors maybe interested in in um, getting into this business or or at least investing with you or with other companies to to capitalize on on what's been happening? Um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's, um, lo again, logistics has not always been the uh, exciting, sexy property type that it is today. 
Um, it's something actually we, we had been seeing for a cycle or more. More institutions interested in increasing their allocation to logistics real estate. There's a lot of benefits, diversity, obviously the positive tailwinds from e-commerce and some of these other trends. Um, COVID and, and the pandemic just accelerated that, both because I think the, the need for this type of space and the essential nature of these supply chains and, and the customer base that we have. Um, obviously, there was a spotlight shown on it during the pandemic. Um, and then, of course, there was disruption in some other property types. Right. So we, we do see capital flowing um, to the sector, new players um, trying, to, trying to get in here. And, and so it has had a positive effect on cap rates. For example, there was additional compression in 2020, and we expect to see more in 2021. Now, one of the key challenges that, that had maybe kept some investors on the sideline before persists, which is sometimes it can be really hard to deploy capital in this space. Um, you need to buy a lot. So you still need to buy a lot more warehouse um, to to equal the same amount that you would do with uh, just one skyscraper, for example. But given the the positive value momentum in logistics real estate, again, the, the very real and demonstrable benefits of the sector, I think, you know, we will continue to see some pretty strong interest ahead. Um, so is there anything from, you know, from the report or even or more broadly that I haven't touched on that, that you um, wanted to address? Um, let me think, you know, I think one key conclusion, if you, if you look across our research over the past several years, is that location is becoming more important than ever. Um, I think it was highlighted not only in automation, but in, um, we recently released a paper on e-commerce. Actually, we re-summarized uh, a study that MIT had performed on the environmental benefits of e-commerce versus brick and mortar shopping. And one thing they found was if you put an urban fulfillment center at the end of your supply chain, so instead of you know coming in from the outside and, and going on these routes, you got closer in to end consumers, um, it, it improved the sustainability, you know, measured in carbon emissions demonstrably, which really for our customers who are obviously very concerned about sustainability, but also about cost means fewer vehicle miles traveled. It means more efficient labor time. And so what I think, you know, when you tie all this together, is happening is that supply chains are being viewed more holistically. The way that you design them has numerous benefits both to, to your customers, so obviously those service levels that we talked about, but cost control as well. And I think one thing, as I take a, a big step back and look at it, is uh, our customers, you know, these retailers in particular, are looking to control more of their supply chain. We've had tremendous volatility last year at the beginning and middle of supply chains um, with some very uh, lumpy flow of goods. And then at the end with the dramatic shift in the way consumers change their shopping behavior. So that, you know, when you think about trying to control the entirety of this network, there was a lot in 2020 that was, that was out of your control that people were just responding to in the moment and doing the best they can. So as we take that and we go forward, I think there'll be more focus on how all of these pieces 
fit together and really deliver a superior customer experience, really amplify the way you can use a supply chain to your competitive advantage. So all of this, you know, stitched together, I think means more focus on location, more focus on the right logistics, real estate, and more focus on the way you design your operations to deliver, um, you know, better customer service at the end of the day. Well, I used up a good amount of your time. So I want to thank you so much for <laughs> uh, coming on the show. Oh, one quick question though, is if for folks who do want to see these reports, uh, where can they find them? Oh, so you can go to our website, prologis.com, and under the About Us menu, uh, you can find Global Insights and Research, and that's where we publish everything, um, and, you know, definitely would encourage anybody who's interested in this space to, to visit that site. Great. Well, thank you again so much for being so generous with your time and, you know, walking me through um, some of these findings. It was uh, uh, very, very valuable for me. Well, it was a pleasure for me as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you both for being on the show. This is fantastic. I know our audience got a lot out of it. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the audience. Thank you for tuning in and listening to the Common Area Podcast with David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your colleagues. Again, thanks for listening today. For everyone at WMRE, this is Eric Johnson inviting you back in two weeks for all the stories that matter to you. And we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Common Area Podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WMRE or Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. Today's podcast was brought to you by Ryan liberating our clients from the burden of being overtaxed, freeing their capital to invest, grow, and thrive.